This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 140 of the Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Elmore Leonard's 1990 novel, Get Shorty. All right, James, this is a well-known, famous crime writer, uh, Elmore Leonard, who I have never read. And I'm excited to say now I've read an Elmore Leonard novel. Yeah, never read. Uh, This episode was also commissioned by one of our patrons. Yeah. And I can totally see why... This person wanted us to read this book. It's so very much in both of our fields, like so very much in the in the ink and in the film right. uh, of it all. And also, yeah, this is my first Elmore Leonard novel, but he felt very familiar. And I have a very specific, some very specific reasons why. So you mentioned Jamie D. I actually don't know if she's read this or not. I'd be curious to hear from her, actually. Um, she might just be a fan of the movie and, and suspected that the book might be kind of up our alley. Um, and sure enough, it was. Um, and I think you're touching on some of the reasons why this was kind of a fascinating read, because it is in a metafictional way about storytelling and about the film industry. Um, yet it is a novel. Um, so there's there's a lot of layers to it that, that go beyond your typical sort of crime thriller. I'm going to I'm going to make the the easy comparison here. That was the first thing that started started standing out to me. And maybe it'll it'll just you know, it'll it'll paint me as one of these like basic film school students, but <laughs> I was getting mad Tarantino vibes from this, from this story. Okay. Um, and I think it mostly has something to do with the fact that it's like a love letter to film. It's a story about a love letter to film um, in a certain time period. And I, there's more to it there, but it's also it also has this sort of it, it reminds me a lot of the way Tarantino approaches his dialogue and his characters and the way that events happen. I think I think there are moments in this book that are that are out of order. You know, we're getting we're getting sure. sort of a nonlinear narrative. I look I looked into it a little bit. I was like, have I read Elmore Leonard? I got to see what else he's written. Uh, and I found out that he wrote the book that Jackie Brown was based on. And I was like, yeah. that is exactly why I was getting Tarantino vibes. <laughs> yeah. One of the few adaptations, maybe the only one that, that Tarantino's done, you know, where he didn't, it wasn't just a wholly out of his own mind kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I, I think uh, if Tarantino was asked for influential writers, I wouldn't be surprised to hear Elmore Leonard listed, you know? Um, right. And, and he's hugely influential for a lot of writers. Um I don't read a ton of crime fiction, um, but but I know that he is he is lauded as this this super well known writer who has gone on to influence a lot of modern um, crime mm. writers. It reminded me a lot of of Scorsese in this same time period in the nineties, in the you know eighties and nineties, um, and that was sort of my my whole melding of all of this was this is a sort of mafia Scorsese written tarantino directed story like that's what was really <laughs> speaking to me during this so you know mm-hmm. that's then that's high praise i really enjoyed the story and and the characters in it and the the weird quirks and and the way that the story was kind of all over the place yeah well and you you mentioned um how familiar he may seem i don't know if you've ever watched the the tv series justified but that is i haven't yeah that is based off of one of his short stories 
and Raylan Givens to me and, and Chili Palmer have some similar crossover. Um, mainly just how cool they are all the time. Like they're just they're just so cool. Like nothing bothers them. And uh, that he he writes that kind of character just really really well. Yeah, it was fascinating because this is the, the most in control of their emotions kind of ex mobster I've ever ever had a story about right you know yeah. this, he was very much like knew exactly how to like turn the screws on people and without even having to get violent and then would get violent if needed but yeah just it, it was i was just surprised and and to i i think i mentioned in our last episode when we were talking about the fact that this was our next next project i mentioned that i think that i had seen it i don't think i have i don't think i've okay. seen the movie or or read the story before so i'm pretty pretty fresh nice. to this and i'm excited yeah, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but it, you know, a lot of it was coming back as I was reading this book, and I was like, oh yeah, I think mm-hmm. I do remember this. So I'm excited to get back to it, but that's cool if you've never seen it. So I want to approach this uh, this episode a little bit from the perspective of, at least for early on, um, people who are curious about the book, who maybe have seen the movie and are curious about, like, is the book worth checking out um, if I've seen this movie? I guess I'm not as worried about spoilers as much as I want to like talk a little bit at the start with some general thoughts about how this book read for you. Like, did you enjoy it as a novel? I did. Yeah, I, I do have to say with all the praise that I've heaped on it, it took me a little bit to click into the story. I was I was finding myself not very focused when I was reading the first few chapters. Mm-hmm. And I think it had something to do with the fact that I think the first third of the book is setting up the events that will eventually unfold. So there's a lot of setup going on. And it's, you know, it's not a slight against the story. I just was noticing that I wasn't f- engaged right away. Um, but once once things started to cascade, it, 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 you know, it all made sense. It was that was the yeah. reason for the setup. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I was a little mixed on it early on, um, but it kind of won me over. Um, and and one of the reasons I, f- I was a little mixed was was actually sort of lampshaded within the narrative. And that was, I was having trouble liking anybody. <laughs> right. Um, I felt yeah. like everybody in, 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 you know, true, this is true in like Tarantino and other films like that. It's like everybody is kind of terrible. Even Chili Palmer is, is not a super likable guy. Um, I think he's quite obviously sexist, um, racist, um, and, and kind of an asshole. Um, the one thing he has going for him is there's just something undeniably cool and engaging about a guy who keeps his cool and is calm in the face of, everything you know people exploding at him and and yelling at him or or behaving in in ways and he is just calm and cool and even keel throughout and um the power of a person like that i think is something elmore leonard knows and knows well and that's why we see a character like that can become like a raylan givens right um Mm -hmm. who who can be really engaging i know you said you haven't seen it but i I have watched all of justified and i I like that character i think he's a really dramatic character and, and very interesting one so um it, different than Chili Palmer, I don't want to say they're one one and the same, but I definitely think they're cut from the same cloth. I, that that's one that I will be watching because I also love Timothy Oliphant. Like I think he's fantastic. So like to not the fact that I haven't seen it is kind of is kind of a bummer. But I yeah I, I understand. I feel like I've just from cultural context understand sort of like the what the show is about and like the, that 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 kind of sort of lines up with the kind of character that Chili would be. I can I see the comparison you're making. Yeah, I mean, he does he does this character really well that is sort of a he's an almost a fish out of water. And um, it feels that way a little bit with Raylan, too, but not to get into much of the of the, of the justified storyline. But a focus here, it's like what that makes this story so interesting is you take this 
like you said, he's a character straight out of a Scorsese film. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's Robert De Niro. And it's funny because that's like his favorite actor, right? Like he's Robert De Niro mm-hmm. in all these movies. And you take oh, him the movie and you references, him, what's The that? movie references were rampant. And, oh, yeah. and for me, uh, <laughs> amazing. I, I was really happy to, it was, it was, like I said, it felt like Tarantino. It felt like yeah. you were watching something that was just fully referencing and, yeah. and it was a love letter and, and we'll get into this in a second, but it was also sort of a takedown um, yeah. of like the Hollywood system. Well, yeah, because the, be cool you, you, the Hollywood system that we're presented with is, is kind of terrible. Like it's, it's filled with all these corrupt people and the desperation of chasing the dream that Hollywood represents um, is sort of poisonous to all the characters in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And then you enter Chili Palmer, who is, like I said, this sort of Robert De Niro from from Goodfellas or something. Like he's just this badass character who we're familiar with. But you're taking him and you're putting him in the movie business, and he he sort of earnestly loves f- film and wants to be in, m- involved in movie making. Yet all of his skill sets are with being a wise guy and being a tough guy. And the way that 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 comes in is is just really fascinating. Yeah, and how because of the sort of viper's nest that that Hollywood is how like his skills are able he's able to put them to good use there and um and uh yeah I also I like the idea of a character who is it's just like everyone loves movies is is something that I felt like all these characters that we meet they're all referencing movies talking about actors they love performances they love um and they're all like willing to claw their way to to get these movies made um some of them for fame some of them for the art of it all um, really, really interesting sort of framework to set this story up in. Yeah. So I, I also want to heap some more praise on this, um, but I do have some more criticisms, but, but first off, um, Elmore Leonard is sort of really well known for his prose style. And I did find it incredibly engaging and notable because whole passages would go, by. I don't know if you noticed this or not, where it was almost completely dialogue. Um, and seamlessly moving from dialogue to interior monologue that was almost indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. So whenever you were in a character's head, they would they would think in the way that they speak in a really fascinating way. And um, very, very little descriptions of setting. Um, it, it, you almost always had to sort of design the set in your mind based off of context clues. You know, like they'd talk about, he maybe throw out like one detail here or there, but it'd be a lot of like, you know, he'd say to that person, something and he'd reference like the scotch they're holding or something or he'd reference the the what the clothes they're wearing like someone would compliment them on the clothes they're wearing and so instead Mm -hmm. of describing the clothes you're now having a character talk about another character's clothes and then you can take the step in your mind of filling in what the scene looks like somebody's hair at at one point is compared to michael douglas in uh wall street so it's like sort of you you can you can immediately imagine what that looks like and then you you can sort of be like okay this is what this character looks like and uh, using references almost sometimes yeah. to to set the scene. So he's he's well known for this style. He's he's incredibly he has he has a um, remarkable ear for dialogue, and I think that that's one of the things that has held true for for everything I've been seeing, like people discussing Elmore Leonard and sort of his his um, legacy. Um, he was said he was heavily influenced by Ernest Hemingway. Uh, other people have made comparisons to uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, who is famous for his like noir fiction, which would often, you know, you you talk a lot about noir film, which I know a lot of it was inspired by Raymond Chandler and maybe even adapted from some of his early mm-hmm. novels. Um, so I thought it was interesting to see that connection there, right? And then you see, um, I, I saw another author, Dennis Lehane, um, who uh, I think is the author of like Mystic River and Shutter Island and a few others. Um, saying that that Elmore Leonard was his 
and major influence um, and among, among others. So you have, you have this like literary lineage, which I think is really fascinating, right? Of, of these, of mm-hmm. these crime writers um, uh, to, to reconnect one thing that we've already established uh, shutter Island directed by Martin Scorsese. There you go. <laughs> so there's some shared shared blood all over the so place. So much crossover. Here. Well, here I wanted to read this, this this little thing I found here. So Elmore Leonard has been called the quote Dickens of Detroit, which I think is pretty cool. But although his favorite yeah. epithet was one given to him by Britain's New Musical Express, quote the poet laureate of wild assholes with revolvers. Jeez, that's awesome. <laughs> that's a cool name. <laughs> Wait, so the revolver specifically, I would assume, is like Western? Yeah, so he actually got his start um, writing Westerns. Um, you may know of 310 to Yuma as an adaptation of a short story that he wrote. Wow. Yeah, the original 70s 310 to Yuma, too. You know, That's wild. Yeah, I didn't know. Um, so, uh, it, it, and then just to finish this out, his ear for dialogue has been praised by writers such as Saul Bellow, Martin Amos, and Stephen King. Got to bring it. Got to bring it to Stephen King. Stephen King mm-hmm. has even called him the the great American writer. Wow, that's yeah. high praise. That's very cool. Yeah, I think I think King uh, recognized some other stuff. I said was talking about his ear for dialogue. It's just kind of unparalleled, and and that was something that was striking to me because I think as writers, when we're trying to get better, one of the things that you're you're that serves you well is to identify areas where you feel like you need to improve. And for me, dialogue has always been difficult. Um, not saying I can't ever do it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I, some people just have a natural talent for, for dialogue and some people don't. And for me, um, I, I kept thinking like, this is going to be a writer that I could go to if I want inspiration because I can see how well he does it. It, it appears so effortless, um, yet it, it isn't. It's very difficult to pull this off and to have mm-hmm. it not obnoxious yet still feel so true. Um, mm-hmm. I, I saw when he was discussing writing, one of the things he said that I, I thought was notable, he said, my most important rule is one that sums up all 10 was referencing 10, his 10 rules of writing that he put out. Um, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. Um, and then he also hinted, I try to leave out the parts that readers tend to skip, which is something that I've seen like many writers mention as well. Um, but th- if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it, I think is fascinating because, very little in this book, if if anything, seemed like writing. It, it felt like it was being transcribed directly. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even when we're in their interior monologues. Um, so so if you if you're into that sort of thing and you want to see a writer who's doing that at a very high level, then I recommend uh, I recommend him. I haven't read a lot of other. I mean, this is my first Elmore Leonard novel thing I've read, so I can't tell you if this is like the best entry point into his work. Um, mm-hmm. It feels in some ways very self aware and. Um, I suspect that this novel was written with the intention of it being adapted. It feels very much like it was it was made to be a movie. It feels like the kind of thing Hollywood loves Hollywood. So it feels yeah. like the kind of thing that like if you were if you were trying to get something adapted, you might want to lean into the Hollywood aspect of things. Yeah. Yeah. And it, this one definitely does. So I would actually be really curious to go back and read some of his earlier stuff. Like if we ever covered 310 to Yuma to, to see like his earlier work that was just a straight up Western. Um, I, I'd be fascinated. Um, some other adaptations that have been made from his work. You already mentioned Jackie Brown. Um, we also have uh, Out of Sight, which was a 1998 movie starring George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Um, and then we have, yeah, the television series Justified. And then they also made a TV series, uh, Get Shorty, that came out in 2017. I think it ran for two or three seasons, I was seeing, and was was not... 
it was it was relatively positive reviews from what I was seeing. Like I, I didn't know about it. It was on like Epics or something channel, so I I never really heard of it, but it did run. Well, it had Ray I mean, Romano that could <laughs> that could be something that we revisit at some point for a bonus episode, I guess, if we want to do a whole season. A, a full season or at least a few episodes of season one yeah. or something. Yeah, that could be interesting. Could be cool for comparison's sake, at least. So you mentioning the dialogue, um, I just sort of got the wheels turning and I've been thinking about how, um, you know, it's it's conversational and it's sort of stream of consciousness. And it made me think about how screenplays are, are you know, very heavily dialogue. Um, and this being so movie centric made me think about how, um, you know, maybe that was, you know, it sounds like that's part of his, his, um, you know, that's, that's part of his repertoire normally, but maybe in this, this case specifically, he wanted it to sound sort of screenplay ish because there are moments where we, where we break into screenplay in the, in the actual book itself. No, no, they definitely do go into directly into screenplay, and there are times where the dialogue tags drop away, and you actually just get like uh, name of character colon, and then what they say, right? Um, as if you're reading a screenplay, right? Um, which I, I thought was fascinating how you sort of move seamlessly into that. Um, he he plays kind of fast and loose with grammar sometimes, um, often for certain effects. Um, one, it's interesting when I was looking at the book, I was seeing reviews, um, sort of being critical of it for having typos and grammar grammatical errors and i and after reading it i think those were intentional and the reader maybe didn't pick up on it and thought and assumed that they were accidents um but it feels like to me that this is much like a um cormac mccarthy he has this particular style that breaks a lot of sort of conventions and he's doing it for a reason he's doing it for effect and and i think it's to more quick more closely mimic like the way people speak right I did see something, and I don't know if you saw this in your research, but I did see that he, um, with some of his stories being adapted, he also was known for writing screenplays at some point in his career. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's that's also an interesting angle as somebody who's had things adapted and somebody who has helped to adapt things or written screenplays on their own uh, to be sort of addressing Hollywood and the film industry is is fascinating yeah i mean and if your strength if you have a strength in writing dialogue you should absolutely try your hand at writing screenplays because they're you know 90 percent dialogue if not more um so you know that's that's kind of like you can't hide it with anything else i want to know because i, I kind of know personally where i fall but i don't know for you so i'm curious um we've read r- writers now throughout the podcast that run the gamut of um sort of descriptive uh one might call it flowery, although that sounds like I'm condemning it, but like just more descriptive, rich um, prose that is maybe uh, not as immediate and, and fast paced as something like this. And then you have very stripped down, you know, this this, this writing is very stripped down, very dialogue focused. Um, and this tends to be a hallmark of a certain kind of crime fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there was a sort of movements where this was like, oh, this is the way you write and this other way is bad. And you know what I mean? Just like anything else, like when it started becoming all the rage, it, you know, it seemed like this is the way it always should have been, like screw all this other stuff. And then you kind of have the reaction to that where people are like, actually, it's nice to sometimes, you know, describe something in a beautiful way. And so we're going to do that again. Um, but I'm just curious, like what, what your thoughts are, like, what do you like? Or do, do you like both? Or do you do you have a preference? I, I think that when you read something that it's like descriptive, like you're saying, that sort of has the you know, it goes the extra mile to describe things and, and like thread in metaphor and thread in all. I, I, I really like that richness of writing. That's something that I feel like I respond well to. And, it, and you know, I think in some ways it calls attention to the fact that you're reading a book, but I like that 
if that makes sense like i like to yeah. I like like i don't mind if i understand that, like the medium is uh, you're reading a book right now and it's going to be very descriptive and and like take the time to show you things through the author's eyes even more than you maybe would have if it was just shown to you on a you know you're getting more of i think the author's voice in a situation like that and i think i prefer that in the writing that we've seen at least so far but like you say there's something naturalistic there's something very natural about some something like this the dialogue that this is what other podcast probably sounds like you know it's just it's just conversational back and forth and that's probably similar to something in a crime drama that and it makes it gets you closer to the people in the story in in certain ways sure yeah i I mean i i see the the benefits of the technique you know but but like you said i think personally i i don't mind occasionally when i know i'm reading a book and something's being described in a beautiful way um or in an interesting way um that's okay to me, you know, because uh, one of the things I like about reading is when I do get a new perspective on something or an interesting perspective on something provided through the lens of whatever the narrative is. Um, but but that's not to say that, like, there aren't pitfalls. And I, I think, you know, it sounds like a cop-out, but, like, you have to do it well no matter how you're doing it. So, so of course, you could look at writing that is like overly descriptive and, and you could say, well, this is, this is a problem. We need to, we need to strip it down. Sure. Um, but that's also not to say that it's always bad. So, um, but it, it does work for this kind of story. I think that there's also a potential problem you can get into when you, if you do this too much, where it can be very difficult for readers connect emotionally with your characters and I found that Chili, I think the fact that he is so cool all the time and doesn't ever seem to get flustered works because this writing scri- style doesn't really show off uh, emotions in a way. So because he always is cool, it, it sort of plays into it. Mm-hmm. But if he was a character who was often having emotional reactions to things, I think sometimes you might feel disconnected from it because we don't we don't really get that. Um, on the page as much for people there is there is something with with chili that i wanted to mention in terms of his character the idea that his so he's this big tough guy uh who is always confident and we come i like i like this idea that deep down like not even deep down just in general he's a huge movie fan and like he he responds to these stories and he likes movies and you know he sees he looks to movies sort of for the idealized um you know, person or like looks to looks to people just like everyone does. And everyone has for as long as movies have been around, uh, like looking to the people on the screen and, and being infatuated by them and, and wanting to, to sort of imitate them and, and wear, wear the clothes they wear, do the things that they do. Um, the, at one point it was mentioned how some of the characters were trying because of Scarface, they were acting and they were speaking in a certain way after seeing Scarface. And like that to me raises the idea that like movies do influence people and they change how people, you know, how they act. And this idea that some, even some, this tough guy who's always confident has all the answers is the same way. And then we see him pitching a movie uh, in the beginning of the novel, which I want to talk about definitely, but uh, the idea of pitching a movie, this this guy has this story that he wants to tell and, and, you know, we don't really know his motivations that early on, but it seems like he just wants to get a movie made because he loves movies. Well, it was reminding me of, a, I think it was a conversation we were having about, about The Godfather, right? Oh, right, yeah. I was watching a, a, a Bob Marley documentary and just the way that uh, sort of Westerns, cow, like like cowboy Westerns and... and um, 
mafia movies and Scarface and these kinds of things shaped how the people in Jamaica were acting during the sort of civil unrest that they had there during the time that Bob Marley was coming up. And a lot of Bob Marley songs were written about the, you know, brothers killing brothers in the streets and the government trying to tell people what to do and manipulating factions of people and that sort of thing. So just this idea that like movies influence people in other countries, you know, like, like, I don't, who's to say that Francis Ford Coppola realized that the Godfather would, would, you know, eventually have people in Jamaica calling each other the Dons and things like that. And, and, you know, seeing each other as like the sort of militarized factions of, and families and things like that. And that's just an effect that's from movies is basically a point that somebody in the documentary was making. And in the book, they even bring up Scarface as like all these guys running around acting like the character. Right. So, and I definitely get the impression that Elmore Leonard was like writing things he knew about. Like he, he obviously interacted with people and he seems like the kind of person who probably did know some actual mobsters, right? And um, knew, like, the kind of movies they liked. And, you know, it, it's it's a fascinating sort of side effect of, of these gangster movies is that you then have real-life gangsters emulating them. Right. And then that circles back around to the, what this movie is at its core, and that's it's it's a gangster who wants to become a like a, get involved in movie making. And I think there actually is some interesting metaphor in here because um, even though it's not sort of highlighted in the same way um i was thinking about how he at the end of the book we see him wearing this lakers shirt and it's very unusual for him to be wearing it um in this you know big cinematic moment at the end he's just wearing like a laker t- lakers t-shirt and it showed to me like his sort of acclim like like he's embracing the la lifestyle right and it looks unusual on him yet he's still wearing it you know right yeah you can tell that like he this is a new home. Like he's glad that he left his yeah. his. I think Miami was where he was before. He's glad that he left Miami behind. Um, clearly running from something early in the novel, and then and then it turned into him finding his new home here and finding where he could use his skills and and you know have the future he wanted to. All right, so we're getting into it now. So I better uh, I better start getting some plot described here, so we can talk about some specifics. Well, let's do it. Yeah. So Chili Palmer is a small time loan shark based in Miami. After a run-in with mobster Ray Bones Barboni, Chili goes to Las Vegas in pursuit of Leo DeVoe, a dry cleaner who has scammed an airline out of $300,000 in life insurance money by faking his own death, as well as avoiding his $10,000 debt to Chili's employers. After relieving Leo of the money in Las Vegas, Chili gambles it all away. However, at the casino, he finds a more interested, more at the casino, he finds a more interesting assignment. The casino is looking to collect from Harry Zim, a horror film director based in Los Angeles. Chili, himself very interested in the movie business, heads for Los Angeles to make Zim pay. Chili sneaks into the house of actress Karen Flores, where Harry is staying in the middle of the night. After he warns Harry to pay his Las Vegas markers, he explains that he has an idea for a movie. For the movie's plot, Chili recounts Leo's story to Harry in the third person, as if it were a work of fiction. Karen, however, recognizes the premise as a true story and identifies Chili as the unnamed loan shark. All right, so a lot there, and that just goes to show there's a lot of plot here. There's a lot of plot that, that, that unfolds throughout this book. Yeah, like I said, all over the place. They travel to many different cities and do many different many different set pieces uh, that, that sort of culminate in this story uh we got to talk about this the main i i found this to be very funny because the idea of someone breaking into your house 
as a producer, as a movie producer, to pitch you a film has to be yeah. every producer's nightmare, right? Like they're obviously always <laughs> getting everybody's movie pitches, but this yeah. big guy breaks into their house and then he's just like, hey, what's up? So uh, I have this idea for a movie. He's like, pay, pay your debts. And by the way, I have this idea for a movie. And then they sit there right. and pitch it all night till four in the morning and, and like, you know, brainstorm together. And it's just, I found it yeah. to be really funny. Well, yeah. And, and then and the movie is about himself. It's his own story. He's the main character of it. Because at, at one point um, he says, like, who's who's the good guy in this? Like, who who does the, you know, the audience root for? And he's like, the loan shark, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> obviously <laughs> um, he's the good guy, um, which I thought was was pretty winning. Um it, it, this this is where he started to win me over too because it was it was so self aware that it, like I started to, I started to like it you know um, started to really like it it wasn't like I was hated it before but it, it just really started to win me over mm-hmm. I think around this point yeah I th- I you know I didn't really know what to expect because it opened up with sort of your typical gangster uh, setting and like someone's been wronged he like gets his coat yeah. taken so he he chases after him they get into fights over it over a couple of years. Um, you're talking about Ray Bones. Ray yeah. Bones, and he, he shoots him in the head, but doesn't kill him. It like skims the top of his head. Right, and so so Ray Bones has this thing out for him for basically mm-hmm. the whole story. This does remind me of a thought I had. Um, now you haven't seen the movie, but but my memory of the movie is that it is actually a lot more of a comedy um, than I found the book to be, and that was actually kind of a criticism I had for it. Um, it felt like tonally, at times, I didn't know how serious to take it. And it really, it really straddles the line between like a dark comedy and and being sort of a serious crime novel. Um, no, it's not dark, but but it takes itself pretty seriously a lot of the time. It felt like to me. I think it was funny in the in a way that it was like clever uh, and funny. I th- I think that it was you know like you say it was pretty serious, but at times it it felt almost like a fairy tale because of how things were working out for them or weren't working mm. out. Um, so it didn't feel extremely grounded at all times. And that's where I felt like I got some of the humor. Yeah. Well, and it was, a, there were absurd scenarios and I think, but you have to kind of step back from the narrative to appreciate them. Like you said, like when you kind of step back and realize what's happening, him pitching this movie to this guy is, is just absurd on, on, on the surface. And we see that throughout, you know, these, these really kind of absurdist scenarios play out, um, so it, it, I don't, yeah, I don't want like don't get me the wrong way. It is funny, mm-hmm. but it's not funny in the same way the movie is. So I'll be interested to revisit this when we watch it. Yeah, I think the movie is more of a comedy. I wouldn't consider this to be a comedic book. I wouldn't be like, oh, it's a comedy. Check out this cool, funny comedy. Um, it just yeah. happens. It's just got it's darkly. It has like a dark humor to it. Yeah, but is it at its core a comedy? I don't know. Right, and and you spoke about tone, and I think that that's something very unique to this story. Also, is it, it's got this. It's like you said, it, it teeters right between serious and absurdist, and all, while also being compelling. You know, I think it's it doesn't yeah. go, it doesn't veer off and in, into absurdity and and become sort of just you know a clusterfuck. It's just it's it's got nice, uh, it's got a nice engine to it. The, the, the it really moves mm-hmm. forward. I, I had a question for you that that I wrote while I was reading this. Um, in particular, this scene I think when Harry comes down and first sees. Uh, Chili waiting for him. Um, Harry constantly describes moments from the through the view of a director, right? Like he is talking about shots and lighting, and he's like imagining how something would look if it like shot from a certain angle and all this stuff. Like he, he's constantly thinking this way. Right. Um, did this strike you as um, 
realistic or did it strike you as like a characterization like a over-the-top characterization of, of somebody I, th- I would say definitely a little bit of both because i do find myself in general thinking especially i mean for one when you watch it when i watch a movie for sure but even just in my everyday life i'll be like i'll just like look outside and see oh we have it's golden hour basically or just the way that the way that somebody the light is hitting someone or like i you know and just in general i i think like what would I think about things cinematically, definitely, but I don't think about everything all the time cinematically, if that right. makes sense. So, do you think if you were like, if you'd made fifty movies, though, like you maybe? Might, I mean, do you, you think it's the realistic you might look maybe at if I was like Roger Deakins or something, and I'm like this amazing <laughs> yeah, cinematographer? Yeah, I mean, I he probably does. He's probably like, give me this lens right now, like thinking like he has a whole film, yeah. like a whole camera department with him at all times, and he's like asking the AC for lenses and stuff yeah. and. I wonder if you said people like that take notes like, uh, oh, I, I saw, a, you know, there was a blue light from a TV that was hitting a glass and maybe it felt like it would have been a really good scene that would have evoked this sort of feeling or something, you know, just to like remember that for later. Like, I honestly, I wouldn't doubt like it. it yeah. Well, and, and in general, I thought that was the strength of this book, um, because when you got multiple different POVs and I believed each one of these people, um, even Karen, when we got Karen POVs, uh, her POV, I, I was convinced and I wasn't sure I was going to be because like I said, Chili was extremely sexist and a lot of the characters are here, but it felt almost more like Elmer Leonard was trying to say like people like this are, are sexist and and Hollywood, at least in this time period and maybe still now, um, is incredibly sexist, right? So, but yet she was still finding a way to sort of survive in this environment and it felt like her and then I think there was like a, a producer character, Elaine, later... Um, it felt like they kind of knew what the score was and were like trying to find a way to exist in this very um, hostile environment Definitely. That, that Hollywood was at this time. Well, yeah, and we get we get people talking about Karen and just like t- speaking about like why I think it's Harry specifically talking about why she wouldn't get roles based on like her age oh, yeah. or all that and all that sort of stuff. And I guarantee that still happens today. You know, I I, I'm, I guarantee that there are producers out there and I'm not saying it all is like that, but it definitely still happens in, in basically every field. And, in, in, you know, I don't know um, the story behind this movie, but I've been seeing going around on Twitter right now. People are talking about the um, there's a Kevin Bacon film coming out where he's married to uh, Amanda, Amanda Seyfried, Seyfried or whatever yeah. her name is. And the, the, the age difference is something like 20 something, 27, 28 years or something. Yeah. Um, and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Why are they, you know, I, I hope that the age difference is like a plot point and not just Hollywood doing its Hollywood thing. Yeah. That's a Can't holdover say. from, from forever. You know, that I feel like that's always yeah. been there. And I, you know, I think I would like to say that it's been getting better, but you know, I don't, I don't know. The evidence is really there all the way. It's, you know, I think maybe we're getting better, but not, not quite even close to, <laughs> to all the way there. And yeah, so you're reminding me that just about how, what I was talking about before this viper's nest of, of Hollywood and the, the way that we look at Hollywood, um, implying that and, and having someone who is an ex-criminal or someone who is involved in the mafia come and be so successful implies that Hollywood is full of crooks and people who, you know, who will do anything to get to the top and uh, how the agents are, are, you know, screwing people over at every turn, how, you know, all of the, everybody's trying to screw everybody over and it's criminal um, and, you know, we still, you know, Hollywood accounting is a thing that people talk about a lot, how people get screwed on deals that they have for, you know, for not nece- not gross of the of the movie, but, you know, whatever profits that the movie makes, people are supposed to make money a bit off of that sometimes. And, you know, Hollywood accounting makes it so that 
people never get paid. Uh, there's a lot of famous examples. I think even Lord of the Rings is a fa- famous example that I, I want to say it didn't make on paper. It never almost never made money or something crazy like that. Return. I, I don't wow. know. It's insane. Yeah. So, hmm. you know, they there. It's definitely crooked. There's crooked stuff in the industry. Um, and yeah. so to call but but it's it's I think it's smart to have a character come in and be so successful because of all of that because of his past and to have it, you know, sort of lean into the fact that everybody's crooked. And I like when, when confronted probably for the first time by Chili, I think it's interesting to see how people react to him sort of mean mugging them. Cause he has that, um, what is his, what's his line? Like, look at me, look at me, yeah, look at me, look at me. <laughs> yeah. I like to see how each character is prepared to you know react to a, a, an ex mobster. Who's kind of like grilling them. I just kept thinking about um, my dogs and how, like literally like watch me is the thing i've had to train them to do mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of the things they have you train your dogs to do early on is to like get make eye contact so whenever he was saying look at me i just kept thinking about like and that was something that you have to train dogs to do so they'll actually listen to you and they want to just ignore you yeah <laughs> but it works right you get, make that eye contact <laughs> establish dominance <laughs> which he's basically doing um I, I did want to touch on a little bit of something that's maybe a little bit outside the scope of this book um but it made me think of it and it felt to me like Elmore Leonard was writing about it indirectly. And and that, to me, was toxic masculinity, um, which I know is kind of like a loaded term these days, and people think it means different things. And um, But for me, Chili is a character who is he's sort of trapped in his tough guy persona. And Karen represents like a, a, a pathway to him actually having like an emotional connection to somebody. And I think it's evidenced when he's in the car with her and she's talking about this this um, movie she's trying to get the role for. And he starts talking to her about it. And it's about a mother and a daughter. And he like says some smart, insightful things about their relationship, this mother and this daughter. And I was surprised because it didn't seem like something that Chili would would have opinions about in this way. Right. And it also kind of shows that like he's a fa- he is a fan of more movies than just the gangster movies. Like he has seen other kinds of movies and does like them. Right. Um. And so that was cool. And then I was thinking about like, that's, that's one of the reasons why he likes her so much. But that led me down the pathway of like, it's fucked up that a a lot of men do feel like they can only have that kind of connection with a woman, because they can't have an emotional connection with another man, like they have to be sort of emotionally closed off and be tough guys, and not care about things like how a mother and a daughter relate to each other, right? Like, and, and how just how like toxic that is, and it's interesting because I feel like in in some ways it felt like Elmore Lemon was talking about that because Hollywood also um, represented an escape from that life for him in the same way, right? Like the the life of having to always be a tough guy. Like he wanted to he wanted to get involved in art, right? Like which is inherently not the manliest quote unquote thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I mean, again, I think this is a. This is an area I'd like to say I hope that we've gotten better since 1990 in terms of, you know, toxic masculinity and being aware of it. I mean, but, I think progressives have gotten better. <laughs> but. Yeah, I can only speak from my perspective. So I don't I don't know. I like the idea of Leonard, you know, calling calling attention to it yeah. in 1990. And, and if you know, if that's what he was doing, he may have been doing it subconsciously. I don't know. And, and you know, equating it to Hollywood, because a lot of times if you look at main characters they're sort of the 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 main action hero characters do kind of embody that that toxic masculine sort of archetype yeah totally out of touch with their feelings just you know hard-boiled right. alpha dogs whatever you want to call right. it yeah 
Um, which Chili kind of is, but like he's also kind of a subversion of that trope, right? Because he wants to get involved in movie making and he kind of, I don't know, it's like he has the skills, but he also seems to hear the call, right, to, to create art in some way. Right. Even though he doesn't yeah. even really realize it. Like I think at the end when he gets talked about being potentially being an actor, like it's the first time he actually considers being in front of the camera and like what that would be like and he he makes fun of like the idea of being in a, a movie about three men who have to raise a baby which I thought was a funny reference right all right i'm just gonna move into another chunk of summary here so harry asks chili's help in dealing with a script he wants to buy from his writer's widow who wants five hundred thousand dollars for it and he guaranteed a two hundred thousand dollar investment from a bow catlet who is a local limo, limo driver and drug dealer to make another movie named Freaks. <laughs> it's getting confusing, but, but bear with me. So Harry gambled Bo's $200,000 away in Vegas in a hope of making the $500,000 he needed for Mr. Lovejoy, which is the name of the script he's trying to buy. In a meeting with Bo, Harry and Chili tell them that their investment in Freaks is sound, but that they are making another movie first. Bo tells them to move the money into the new picture, and Harry says he can't. Meanwhile, Bo is involved in a Mexican drug deal that falls through. He has left the payment in a locker at a Los Angeles airport, but the Colombian sent to receive the money, Yayo, doesn't feel safe unlocking the locker with so many DEA agents standing around nearby. Bo later meets Yayo in the limo garage, and after Yayo threatens to tell the DEA who Bo is, Bo shoots him. All right, so let's talk about Bo Catlett. Let's talk about um, sort of all these scripts and everything. Um, buying scripts and and gambling away money, which seems to be quite a quite a uh, frequent occurrence with these characters. Yeah, I mean they're clearly all gambling addicts because right. it's like this isn't money that they can be like, oh, I've made all this money, I can go spend it. This is money money that's been set aside for specific projects that you know what I mean. Like this is this is money that's set in stone what it's being used for, mm -hmm. and to like gamble it away seems very, I mean obviously irresponsible, but <laughs> yeah, it seems like they might have problems. Uh, well, and then I think it's problems. equating it to the gam the inherent gamble investing in movies is right. It's said repeatedly right. that that even investing in a movie is a high risk gamble, right? Um, and so we meet this Bo Catlett guy. He seems like he's kind of a tough guy, but in like a Hollywood way. <laughs> I, I don't know how to describe him. Um, he also seems like he's he's got some similarities to Chili. He's almost that foil, right? Who like represents a lot of the same um, character traits. He's not as cool. But he is sort of a criminal operating in Hollywood and using his criminality to get ahead. Right. He's willing, again, willing to do anything to be involved in this. And he's one of the one of the people trying to claw their way in and claw their way to the top. Uh, this this bit of summary also included one of the f scenes that I thought was one of the funniest. And that was uh, and I also I, I do remember the scene in the movie being hilarious. Um, and that was uh, Chili sort of uh, coaching Harry on like. How, how this is all going to go down. And he like repeatedly says, they're going to ask you who I am and you're not going to say anything. And you're not going to tell them anything about me. You know, and it's like, well, you're not going to tell them anything about me. They don't need to know who I am. And then like, as soon as he comes in, it's like, who's this? And he's like, oh, that's my associate, Chili Palmer. <laughs> he tells him immediately and he just looks at him like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and we're getting the, the you know, we're getting chili's point of view so yeah. he he's like immediately like oh he's throwing it all to the wind i can't believe we even had this plan in the first yeah. place because he's just ruining and er ruining everything he still tries to take over in certain situations uh and and like sort of grill people and and it still kind of works out but it just not in nearly the power move that that chili was looking for and that's one of the things i was going to say I, that i love about this scene is that we still see chili able to 
assert his presence a little bit, but he's not able to fully dominate the conversation like you think he might have been if Harry had just listened to him. Um, Harry just completely undermines so much of it. Um, but it's fascinating, right? It's throwing a curveball at, at Chili, and we get to see how he reacts to this curveball. So moving along with the plot, Bo offers the locker money to Harry as an investment and tells him to send Chili to get the money. Chili senses something wrong, signs out a nearby locker as a test, and is taken for questioning by DEA agents. After the questioning, Chili seeks the interest of Michael Weir, a top-tier Hollywood actor, to play the lead role in Mr. Lovejoy. Ray Barboni, after learning about Leo's money from his wife, comes to Los Angeles looking for the money Chili collected from Leo, only to find the key to the locker from the failed drug deal in one of Chili's pockets. Thinking Chili has stashed his cash in a locker, he goes to the airport and is busted by drug officials. Okay, so a lot more plot unfolding here. <laughs> so I thought that Michael Weir was a an actor that I would just had a huge blind spot for. Did you feel the same way? Because I had to go Googling to find out if uh, this is someone that I just completely missed. No, I was pretty sure he was he was fictional, but I, I do love the way that uh, he he was so seamless with his threading in of fictional movies, fictional actors um in with in with like real actors and real movies so much so that i don't always know because i'm sure there are a lot of real movies that i thought might have been fictional because i just didn't recognize them (laughs) yeah i want to say for the most part a lot of the ones that i saw were were real or at least were like subtle references in some way to them but again this is so much of of sort of i think maybe what tarantino takes from from an uh, an author like elmore leonard because you know, you got your your actors, especially with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the one that people will point to. because It's very much a Hollywood sure. film in the way that this is a Hollywood story in, in this in this book. Um, and then, you know, you introduce uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character and Brad Pitt's character who are a made up actor and and stuntman that were based off of people that that Tarantino had interacted with. Um, but just to have that in a, in a story that has all of the references and everything that would ground it and make it feel really real um, it makes it seamless. Like you said, it makes it, it's not jarring in any way. And, and that's what made me think I just did not, I had never heard of, of, uh, Michael Weir. So what did you think of? Cause once again, the characterization of him was, I thought really good, but also clearly over the top, right? Like the oh, way yeah. he was yeah. like, so into the, like, they were like at the bar, right? Oh, I'm, I'm going to be you. And he's like, yeah, when they meet in the bar yeah. that one time and he starts acting as the character, like as he's talking to them and he starts teaching he's, them about the look and everything. Right. He's not, he's not, um, you know, they keep talking about how amazing he is for immersing himself in the roles. And he's not your like Daniel Day-Lewis, right? He's not the sort of understated, amazing performer. Method actor. He's like very, he's very full of himself. Yeah, like he he's like he know he's like oh this is how I can turn that accent on in a second and I know that the, although he did have some good insight into why maybe someone that was associated with the mafia spoke the way that they did I thought that was an interesting yeah. sort of analysis yeah, I, of that I agree he did have moments where it was it, it felt legit like that's something that an actor might actually say right but overall yeah over the top is a good over way to describe top, it yeah and 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 it felt like uh, Chili was making fun of him. Like a lot of the time, you know what I mean? Or judging him a lot, at least, you know, like judging the way he dressed and like the way he when they meet when they meet in the restaurant later, he like orders an omelet at this like fancy restaurant. He's like, oh, it's just the way actors are, you know? Yeah, I think Chili wanted to like him at first like but yeah. like but um i guess this shared history with karen, karen. yeah so that's another thing, thing. He's, he's got this jealousy which we've already established early on because he, he was talking about how he once dated like a go-go dancer or something but he couldn't 
he fell in. I think he even says he fell in love with a go-go dancer. I think it was a go-go dancer. It might have been something else, but but he couldn't stand all the men looking at her all the time, so he had to break it off or something. Right. Which shows like how this how he is, right? So so when he keeps thinking about like he's like, well, I don't know why I don't like him. Like we know why he, he used to be with Karen, right. who you have feelings for, yeah. Right. Yeah, and and uh, that so that on top of the fact that he sort of. You know, he they did meet before, but he feels like he's I don't know, maybe there's like a respect thing that he feels like, although he, he said in the story early on, uh, Chili said that he wasn't really interested in the, res- the, whole, the respect or anything that came with being in the mafia. Michael had come at some point to sort of meet up with them somewhere in Brooklyn or somewhere yeah, in New York uh, yeah. or something like that. I was wasn't it clear if, like, if, if he was actually there or if he just said he was there. Was he actually there, you think? Oh, I'm not sure. I hadn't even thought about it like that. I just yeah. assumed he was. Because I think there was an early on, there was a conversation with Harry where he was saying something like, it seems like the kind of guy who would go to like research actual mobsters. And then Harry's like, yeah, he, he totally did that. And then later when they were talking, he's like, yeah, you met me in, in Brooklyn. And he's like, yeah, I think I remember you. And I thought maybe he was just lying and saying that he was there. Yeah, I guess he is from Miami anyway. So I don't know yeah. why. Although I think he Brooklyn. did spend some time in Brooklyn. It's not, I'm not really clear yeah. on it. I don't know. I could see it going either way. So I'm not really sure. But, you know, I think your point's well taken there. And and um, I, I don't know. I was just I, I really enjoyed this actor character, um, even while clearly he was being made fun of. Right. That reminds me uh, something I wanted to say about all the characters. You know, we talked about the dialogue and we've definitely talked about a lot of the characters, but there was this sort of energetic this is something else that made me think of sort of the fairy tale nature of it is and maybe it had something to do with like maybe not glorifying but there's something magical maybe about hollywood is is what's being implied yeah Um, just that everyone's so energetic and lively and such a character um and so interesting in their own way and there's really no boring people within the story no a lot of colorful characters you know yeah just kind of leap off the page um you touched on sort of hollywood the dream of hollywood um is sort of ever present in this book, right? And we see all these characters chasing it and imagining themselves in movies and being, and then like even Bo Catlett, um, he stands out on his balcony and he like dreams about he, how he wants to be a part of these people's lives that he can hear, like having a party in the distance. He's like, I just want to be like one of these people, like having a pool party. Yeah. I felt like to me that implied he was just looking for fame and like he wanted to be famous and, and, but, uh, but what's fascinating is also, like, I don't think he knew for certain that those were the, like, that was just a fantasy that he had about who these people might have been. It was, it almost seemed like it was this unattainable thing to me. Like, everybody right. was chasing something else that was, that was out of reach. Yeah, even no matter what the status, like, Harry, Harry's a fairly successful producer still chasing still chasing the hollywood bug still chasing every everyone's after it everyone wants the fame the fortune the the um you know artistry everybody wants to to be seen in this light and have that legacy and no matter what you have achieved it's not enough right Right. and and that's that's you know and that's a risk i mean i think we see that i see that in the writing world a lot too you know authors always talking about how you know never like you have to like take a moment allow yourself to appreciate what you have achieved um whether it's whether it's a very small amount or it is a good amount but because if you are always feeling like it's not enough and you're always chasing the next thing um that's just a recipe for being unhappy all the time right all right let's let's read the final bit of plot here and then we can sort of sum up our thoughts on this in a final showdown with Bo, chili is held at gunpoint one of Catlett's henchmen, known as the Bear, arrives just in time to apprehend Catlett, and in the struggle for the gun, Catlett falls through the railing of his sun deck. 
As Chili recounts his story to Karen and Harry, it shares some comparisons with Mr. Lovejoy. The book ends with Chili pitching the plot of the movie about his own adventures in Hollywood, insulting Michael, and saying, quote, fucking endings, man. They weren't as easy as they looked. Um, yeah, I which, like that a lot. Yeah, very, very sort of metafiction moment there at the end. It's like literally the well, last line of the novel. And to have the, the story mirror, I knew that that was always going to be the case. You know, the yeah. story that they didn't have an ending to, having it mirror the real life that goes on with him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just really perfect. Nice little bow. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the bear, uh, the stuntman, because that was one thing that I just, it didn't quite strike me as realistic. Um, I just, from everything I know about stuntmen these days and I've learned about, like, the idea that this guy would be sort of a, so easily bested by Chili Palmer. I don't know. Like, I get that, like, he tries to sort of describe it as, like, oh, when I fall, I land on a bag. You know, like, when something comes at me, I know it's coming. But from everything I've heard, like, stuntmen are actually tough as fucking nails people. And, you know, you're not just going to punch them a couple times and they're going to be, like, on the ground wheezing. Like, they they take hits for a living. You know? I think it has, it's got to do with the fairy tale aspect of the yeah. story. We and can, it's funny, and we right? Can, it's funny. Right. And we can, we can dig into it with the comparison to once again, once upon a time in Hollywood, right. which, you know, has other baggage there with it because it's Bruce Lee, but you know, people oh, sure, were yeah. upset, uh, you know, for mo- many, many reasons. Um, one being, you know, just overall having the, the one Asian character be the one who gets taken down by the white main character. Um, yeah. But then also it's a real person who was really legendary for his fighting prowess right. and, and versus this fictional yeah. f- fictional character yeah. that beat him and all this stuff. So anyway, barring all that, uh, you know, that he's trying to tell a certain story with his with his narrative, with his main characters. So like the idea that this big brute of a of a mafia guy could eventually could best this this stuntman, I guess, in this case is just, you know, what he wanted to go with. And again, Maybe it's a fairy tale. Maybe it's all sort right. of the idea of, of like you think about telling a story and like who, you know, the, the commentary that that Chili was making where he's like, who, you know, who's supposed to be the main character? Who's supposed to be the person we root for? Maybe there's some a commentary being made there with like, you know, the main character in this in a story like this specifically is going to is going to come out on top. Yeah. Well, so this final confrontation with the with the handrails, did you see this coming? Did you know this was going to happen? No, I didn't. Okay, so you didn't know, you, like, when they were having the confrontation and he was describing to him, oh, you're going to back up by the railing, did you know, at least at that point, that he was going to fall through the railing? Or were you yeah, I mean, surprised? yeah, once it, no, once it was, like, sort of imminent danger there, I think I, yeah, I think I got okay, it. Okay, you were like, all right. Um, I, I don't know, I just think it was interesting. And then, like, the book ending, talking about how endings are difficult, right, and and um, the comparisons being made. I, I kept thinking about how, like, it works as sort of a metafictional way, but, like, this whole book is about a movie so it feels incomplete like i i felt like i need to see a movie about this now because the the movie he says at one point it could be called get michael and then he's like no no, no i'm getting that confused with my real life where we're trying to get michael to be in this movie and then mm-hmm. he insults michael by calling him short and then we see that the name of the book is get shorty so it's like a joke which like doesn't really work that right. well for me i don't but whatever that's what it is i don't yeah, it took me, I, I couldn't, you know, up until the end, I was like, really, I, it was because it was weighing on me. I was like, the whole time I was like, I wonder what this shorty, like, what are, where are we, where are we leading to with this title? Mm-hmm. Um, And then, you know, ultimately at the end, get shorty, like it, once it, once it's made clear 
um yeah i'm still kind of puzzled that like this is what he chose for the title is what i'm trying to say well even even so that's the name of this book but it's also implied to be the name of the movie right so Mm -hmm. if you have a movie called get shorty and you have the same events unfold you're going to be left with a sense at the end of oh so the movie they had made is the movie that i am now watching right it's very like it's getting into adaptation territory yes and i think that's why it works better as a movie Mm -hmm. i think fundamentally to me um because as a book there's like a different layer there because you're reading a book and already and they're not talking about writing a book about this you know if he was talking about writing a book about this thing and like i I finally figured out what i'm gonna call this book and it's get shorty and i'm gonna write this book like then you would go oh okay i'm reading the book that he wrote but instead it's a movie right so when you but when we watch the movie later i think that's in my head is it's like this is the movie of the story that we are yeah. watching, you know? I mean, how, yeah, right? you have to think of it as like sort of the head canon and sort of the canon of the story. Like maybe what we're seeing in the film is meant to be a representation of what, not the book, but what movie that they're making in the book. Yeah. Or, and then when you talk about fairy tales, it's like, well, yeah, it's because we're watching a movie and, and everything's changed. Like the reason he's able to best this guy is because it's a movie. We're watching a movie. You know what I mean? Like you can get into that territory and and that'll be fun to revisit. I think next week, uh, I'm really excited to watch this movie coming up. Um, I definitely am going to have a new perspective on it now after reading this book. I also do really want to get into some more Elmore Leonard. Um, there's, there's, there's multiple options there we could go, we could go with, so if you are an Elmore Leonard fan, definitely write in and let us know. Would you like to hear us cover 310 to Yuma? Would you like to hear us touch on Justified in some way? Um, you know, one of those other ones we listed. I think there were a few more. Jackie Brown's ho- top of my list. Jackie Brown. Yeah, we can talk about Tarantino, which we've never done before. You know, as, as, as controversial a figure as he is, I, I think we'd have a lot to say. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, as controversial as he is, uh, I don't think it's, you know, undeniable that he's been one of the one of the like the lightning rods of the film industry. There's a reason he makes great films. And I think yeah. I think people, you know, react either positively or negatively to the movies and also what goes on, out, you know, outside yeah, of the outside movies. and the stuff he says and, and, and everything else surrounding it and sort of like a, a, a you know, a discussion about art and like what makes good art and what should we be trying to say with our art and all those things, you know. Um, he's, yeah. he's a fascinating character for a lot of reasons. Um, but yeah, if you want to have any suggestions about that, definitely write in to inktofilm at gmail.com and let us know. But we're going to be back uh, next week for the film, Get Shorty, um, which should be really fascinating to talk about, especially since you've never seen it. So I'm excited yeah. to get into that. I do want to thank Jamie D again for commissioning this. Um, she's been a longtime supporter of ours um, at one of our highest tiers and the, our highest tier. And, uh, you know, shout out to her. Yeah, she's a jukebox hero. And uh, she's she has been for for a little while now. And honestly, I just want to give her props because this is a, a really fascinating project to to get the chance to cover. You know, and I, this was a, a blind spot for me. So to get to. I think that it works so perfectly for what we're trying to do with the podcast and the the idea of a book having commentary on Hollywood and films in general is just like, it's so in our wheelhouse. It's so within the the, uh, framework of what I think we're trying to do here. Yeah, it's been cool. And um, if you wanted to find out how you could commission a project of your own, visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. You find out about being a jukebox hero. And then also on our website, ink to film, you can find a list of potential projects that we haven't covered yet that you can unlock um, through doing that. Uh, We also have lower tiers that are less um, and we get bonus episodes on there. We release new bonus episodes every month. And we got like 25 of them out there now. Um, A lot of cool stuff. So definitely check that out.
Make sure you connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And please join the Council of Inklings. Um, we post polls in there. I think our last project, Total Recall, was a poll that we posted, was the, the winner of the poll that we posted in there. Uh, we post adaptation news. We post all kinds of uh, adaptation or f- you know film or book-related materials, anything we see that could be a potential project or just things we find interesting. Uh, we post all that in the Council of Inklings on Facebook. And if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. It's a good way to get the word out and continue to help our podcast to grow. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. So I had one last thing I wanted to talk about uh, here at the end. Mm -hmm. Harry calls his production company Zigzag Production. And at one point, I think it's Chili who's sort of analyzing. It's either Chili or Harry who's self-analyzing it. But he says, Zig for the man... Zig for the maniac, escaped lunatic, and dope crazed biker pictures. Zag for the ones featuring mutations fed on nuclear waste. Your slime people, your seven foot rats, your maggots the size of submarines. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. Fun. I just found that to be. I just found that to be <laughs> one of the most like batshit crazy, uh, like paragraph lines in in the in the story. Yeah, I mean, I can pick, like I, I assume all of these movies are fictional, but like I can picture these kinds of horror movies, like B horror movies, right? In this time right. period, um, I actually had a quote here that I wanted to to we can sort of ponder as we go. Uh, he says, uh, "Quote: How many people know who wrote who wrote the movies they saw?" Um, which I thought was ooh, ooh it kind of hit me because yeah. that's not something we often talk about. I, I feel like we that's that's something we haven't done a great job about talking about who wrote the screenplay for everything we've covered. So um, I think it's also because it's an adaptation. So I always feel like screenplays are like adapted screenplays, like they're not they're not original well, screenplays. Yeah, and it, it, do you do you think he might be implying like if a if a film has been based off a book? I, yeah. like our because i feel like that's the case and i think that's what we try to do here we try to very specifically key in and, and call attention to I, I think there are plenty of movies in our back catalog that pe- that most people aren't aware based on a book yeah. um so I, i'm happy that we're calling attention point. to that at least but yeah but, more leonard maybe you know. that was him sort of you know referencing himself like hey pay attention to me when you see this movie one day i actually wrote this thing and there yeah. was a character in the book um that he that, that keeps being talked about and he's like why you know why would he write this book if not for money and he's like there is no other reason i don't know i just thought that was funny too like yeah like the that hollywood couldn't even comprehend another reason to write a novel other than to try and get a movie with you know michael uh, weir in it starring it mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyway, we've gone long, so uh, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>